Welcome everybody uh, to uh, today's uh, Notre Dame International Security Seminar Series uh, featuring our own Siuk Jun Kim. Uh, Siuk Jun uh, is a recent PhD from the George Washington University. Uh, he has an MPhil in Development Studies from the University of Cambridge uh, in England and an MA and a BA in Psychology from Seoul National University in uh, South Korea. Um, and he's going to talk about a, uh, the core of his uh, dissertation slash not book, but series of articles uh, that he's working on. Uh, well, he's a Endisk uh, 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 postdoctoral fellow with us uh, this year. So without uh, further ado, please join me in giving a warm end-disc welcome to Siok Jun Kim. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you for attending end-disc seminar today. Um, as Mike introduced, my name is Siok Jun. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Notre Dame International Security Center. Today, I'm going to present a paper entitled, Do Costly Signals Matter? Um, unifying theories of signaling and perceptions in international relations. This paper is a part of, part of a bigger project of my dissertation, which examines the theory of signal. Here is the outline. Um, first, uh, I'd like to start with motivations of my work, and my research question, and my arguments, and then I very briefly reviewed existing literature and theories that examines the theory of signaling. And I will present um, an experiment that examines the theory of signaling and other theories. Then I'll make conclusions. And right after that, um, we'll have a Q&A session. In 2014, Russia annexed the Ukrainian territory of Crimea and create instability in the eastern part of the country. Many people regarded um, the Russia's attack as an indicator of Russia's revisionist ambition in Eastern Europe. By contrast, at the end of the Cold War period, um, many of Soviet Union's conciliatory gestures, such as the withdrawal of its troops from Eastern Europe and, Af and Afghanistan, and its unilateral um, arms control um, was regarded as a sign, as signs of the change of Soviet Union's intentions. Um, and from, a, from an aggressive communist country to a more benign country um, that wants to change toward a democracy. However, there is no consensus at all um, whether states' actions can signal their intentions. There's even less consensus on what those states actually, what those um, state actions actually mean. Some think that Russia's um, attempt to annex Crimea came from Russia's motivation of self-defense to ex to keep NATO from expanding its influence in Eastern Europe. Um, similarly, some people think that uh, the many conciliatory gestures of the Soviet Union was actually the result of the decline of Soviet Union's power rather than its actual change of intentions. International relations scholars debated the importance of state intentions. 
and how this can convey um, this information. Previous studies of state intentions, however, are almost entirely deductive and tend to focus on what they should do in strategic situations while largely ignoring decision-makers' psychological and subjective environments or decision-makers' beliefs about the world and other actors. Um, I wanted to address this step by asking how we humans, as decision-makers, as decision actually assess and react to other states' intentions and behaviors, instead of asking how we should assess and react to other states' intentions. I found from my experiment that people have conservative bias in assessing threats posed by an adversary um, and when we make foreign policy decisions. In other words, we tend to be pessimistic when we, when we assess threats and when we make foreign policy decisions. People tend to view other states' actions more competitive rather than cooperative, which may make reassurance among states difficult, more difficult than the previous scholars expected. I argue that humans' limited cognitive ability and their desire for survival induce this bias. We have a lot of information to take when we make decisions. Um, however, we cannot, make, we cannot pay attention to all the information available. So we need to select some information that is important for survival. According to evolutionary psychologists, um, Negative information has more informational value for survival than positive information. Um, so according to these theories, um, people may pay more attention to an adversary's aggressive actions rather than benign gestures, because those are negative information which might be more important for survival. If that is the case, um, security dilemma among states might be more likely. Some rationalists and some realists um, present the theory of signaling, um, how states convey their intentions. What is signaling? Um, the signaling, the term, is often described as a state's actions taken to reveal its intentions, such as a resolve for war or peacefulness. Let me give you an example. China 
let's say China is a purely security seeker. Let's say China has a peaceful intention, and China doesn't have intention to fight with other states. And the leader of China, Xi Jinping, declares that we are a peaceful country. You don't want to fight any other country, including Taiwan, or um, you don't want to fight Japan in East China Sea. You don't want to fight any other countries, including Philippines in the South China Sea. We won't fight. Because we are a benign country. However, it's hard to trust his statement because we cannot directly observe China's preferences. And um, we know China has an incentive to hide its real intentions. Um, then, states should find a way to make their signals credible. Rationalists um, suggest. Costly signals can do it. Costly signals make signals credible by taking actions that disguised types or imposters cannot imitate without incurring a high cost. So, for example, rather than just saying we are a peaceful country, maybe if China reduces its military budget radically, or if China um, withdraws its army from the area in dispute, and never show its military presence in the South China Sea or East China Sea, that might be a costly signal that China doesn't have intention to fight with other countries on some issues. Um, contrary to rationalists, um, standard structure realists, particularly offensive realists such as Mearsheimer, argue that um, state intentions not important. States cannot convey the information about their intentions because we can never be certain about other states' intentions. Um, the structure of the international system, anarchy, drives states to compete against each other regardless of states' intentions. So Mearsheimer even argued that so we should assume the worst about other states' intentions. A cognitive psychological theory provides another insight on signaling. <clears throat> Prospect theory, more broadly the phenomenon of negativity effect, um, suggests that decision makers may have incentives to be more concerned about the state's aggressive actions instead of benign actions, um, which makes decision makers pay more attention to other states' aggressive actions rather than benign actions. Because people tend to pay more attention to negative stimuli than positive, while also being influenced more by the negative stimuli than positive. Why should we pay more attention to negative stimuli than positive ones? Um, evolutionary psychologists argue that humans are more sensitive to negative stimuli than positive ones because Few positive experiences offer fitness advantage. The surviving or avoiding even a single negative experience resulting from encounters with predators or poisoned food may prove essential for survival and fitness. When survival is uncertain, marginal losses prove more critical 
for reproductive success than marginal gains. To test the theories described previously, I conducted a survey experiment using two survey tools. The first one is Amazon's The Chemical Turk, and the second one is the YouGov um, company, which is an internet polling firm. Um, the research design is almost the same, except a few conditions. <laughs> so I use a scenario in which the United States needs to take a position on a territorial dispute between country X and a US ally. So country X was described to be a potential adversary of the United States. Then I provided information about country X. Uh, first, I provided information about power. So in one condition, country X was described to be strong. And in another condition, country X was described to be a weak country. Then I provided information, more information about the adversary, country X, um, about its intentions. In benign conditions, country X was described to be more benign. Um, country X withdraws its army or its um, pledge, it pledges to peacefully resolve the dispute. These actions, even though embody the same benign intentions, the cost of actions are different. In one condition, in a costly benign condition, country X was described as withdrawn about most of its army, about 75% of its army. In a less costly benign condition, country X was described to have withdrawn only a small portion of its army, about 5%. And in a cheap, cheap benign condition, country X has often try to peacefully resolve the dispute without any supportive action. In aggressive conditions, again, um, country X was described to be more threatening, to be more aggressive. However, the course of actions um, were different. Um, in a closely aggressive condition, country X was described to increase its army deployment about 75%. In a less closely aggressive condition, country X was described to increase its army deployment very small amount, about 5%. In a cheap aggressive condition, country X was described to threaten to use force in the dispute, but without any supportive action. And I added um, a control condition which does not have any information about country X's intention. In the control condition, it has only relative power information. Um, so as you See, I have um, three IVs, power, and two levels, strong or weak, intentions, benign or aggressive, cost of signals, costly, less costly, or cheap. Um, and I measured three DBs. Um, the first DB was inference about other states' intentions, inference about an adversary's intentions. I measured this DB by asking, how do you assess country X intention? I use five-point um, legal scale. Uh, number one represents very peaceful country. Three represents neither peaceful nor aggressive. Five represents very aggressive. The second DB I use is threat assessment. So the question was, how much of a threat is country X to U.S. security and interest? 
Um, again, I use the same five-point Likert scale. Number one represents no threat. Number three represents moderate threat. Number five represents um, extremely high threat. And the final DB was a foreign policy choice. So the question was, how much do you support the deployment of US forces to fight country X? Um, one represents oppose strongly, three neither oppose nor support, five support strongly. Um, so this is the research design. Um, you can see power, intentions, and cost. For YouGov sample, I um, made 14 conditions. Um, but for enter sample, I didn't have chip condition which makes only 10 conditions for enter example. <clears throat> Two alternative hypotheses was, were made. Um, the first hypothesis is based on the rationalist theory uh, of signaling. So costly signals have a stronger effect than less costly signals or chip talks on observer's responses, um, which include three DBs, assessment of intentions, threat perception, and support for the use of force. Um, the second hypothesis is based on insights from standard structure realist or offensive realist and a cognitive psychological theory. Um, so costly signals have different effects on observer's responses depending on whether the signals embody a signal sender's benign or aggressive intentions. So according to standard structural realist and um, the prospect theory, um, UE assurance might be more difficult um, than threatening. That was the hypothesis too. I'll show experimental results separately according to um, DVs. Um, so here, the DV is inference of intentions. For enter samples, again, I aggregated data over power. Um, so there are five signal types, um, costly benign, from costly benign to costly aggressive. Again, number one represents um, Okay, this country is a very peaceful country. Number five, this country must be a very aggressive country. Um, this graph, particularly the graph on the left, shows exactly what rationalists would expect. Um, costly benign signals were perceived to be more benign, and costly aggressive signals were perceived to be more aggressive compared with less costly ones. Um, and these two conditions, chip benign and chip aggressive, these are chip talks without any supportive action, so um, observers of said actions, or in this case, um, survey participants, inferred that it doesn't matter. Chip talk doesn't matter. However, again, costly signals were perceived to be more credible as the rationalist theory of signaling dictates. I disaggregated this data over powers. Um, so this blue line represents um, when the adversary was described to be strong, and this 
black line represents an adversary which is very weak. However, there seems to be no fundamental difference between a strong and a weak adversary. So according to this result, um, people seem to infer an adversary's intentions as a theory of signaling indicates. Um, these are the graphs when I used um, threat assessment as the DV. Um, again, the x-axis represents the same signal types from coarsely benign to coarsely aggressive. Um, for YouGov sample, again, I added two more conditions, <coughs> cheap aggressive, cheap benign. Um, contrary to rationalists would, is, would expect costly signals did not have particular effects on respondents' perception, particularly threat perception. Even when an adversary was described to withdraw most of its army, 75% of its army, it's a lot of portion of its army, um, respondents did not particularly say, okay, this is not threat. There was no difference. Um, for the YouGov sample, it's the same. Um, there's a slight difference between these two samples. Um, when signals embed aggressive intentions, there seems to be a significant difference between less costly signals and costly signals. However, for the YouGov sample, there is no such difference. Um, no such difference. So, not sure this effect is significant and general or not. Um, then how survey respondents, survey participants responded to this threat assessment? Um, as standard structural realists argue, they seem to base their judgment on the information about power. So. Again, the blue line represents when, when an adversary was described to be strong. So regardless of intentions, um, when survey participants observe a strong adversary, they seem to assess, okay, this is very strong. Relatively regardless of their state's intentions. So particularly this blue line um, indicates that, okay, intentions doesn't matter. As long as the adversary is powerful, okay, I don't care, it's powerful. So power seems to be a very strong factor that predicts observers' assessment of threat. Um, the final DV is foreign policy choice. Um, so do you support or oppose the use of force against country X, which is a potential adversary of the United States? Um, Again, these graphs, the pattern of graphs, um, does not follow the logic of costly signals or the rationalist theory of signaling. Costly signals did not have particular effect on respondents' responses or foreign policy choice, particularly when the signals embody the adversary's benign intentions. However, the, when the signals embody aggressive intentions, the result was different. It was more like um, 
the pattern, the rationalist theory of signaling um, predicts. There was difference between costly signals and less costly signals. There's a slight difference between this graph and this graph, but it seems that when signals embody a state's aggressive intentions, costly cost of signals somehow seem to matter. Um, again, I disaggregated this data for uh, power. There seems to be no fundamental change or difference between when the adversary was described to be strong or weak. <clears throat> so my conclusion is, observance of signals infer the intentions of signal sending states as the theory of signaling dictates. Even though the theory of signaling generally uh, predicts signal receivers' inferences about intentions accurately, humans' bounded rationality um, seems to affect respondents' threat perceptions and foreign policy choices. They almost <laughs> do not care about an enemy's conciliatory gestures. Instead, respondents assess threats and support the use of force according to the theory of signaling only when a state's actions are aggressive. Um, so I argue that human responses may be ingrained to react to threats more quickly and to be slower in being reassured in order to increase the probability of survival. People are selectively more attentive to potential threats like powers and aggressive intentions than non-threats as heuristics because of the limited human cognitive ability and because of the informational value of threats in survival. Thank you. Okay, uh, Siuk Jun, we have a small but intimate uh, seminar, and uh, as regular attendees at uh, MDISC functions uh, will no doubt recall, we also have a number of people who are working on parallel or exactly intersecting uh, issues. Uh, one of them is uh, Sebastian, so uh, we'll recognize him first. Sean is the resident expert on prospect theory, so I'm putting you on the uh, spot. Nisha and uh, then Amitabha and then Dan. Uh, so, uh, Sebastian, please. Thank you. Um, we ask you a few questions about the experiment for the survey, and then a bigger question about the literature and what what this paper could do, is doing, should do, and get your reaction to that. The first experiment, um, a few things popped out to me. The first was that um, when you talk about perceptions of intentions, you go from uh, this state is very aggressive to this state is very peaceful. But you don't talk about the confidence with which they make that judgment. And I thought the whole issue was how confident are you that they are peaceful or aggressive, not the extent of peace and aggression. Right? So how confident are you when you when you decide that they're peaceful or aggressive? Um, it's not like how peaceful or how aggressive, it's like how confident are you that you are correct in this decision. Um, and, I, and I don't think uh, the experiment gets to that. Um, second point, um, it's hard for me to see how 
crisis between the U.S. ally and another state says anything about that state's intentions towards the United States, Wait, how that sort of secondary uh, interaction would affect you. And I would have thought you could draw up an experiment that was just meet the United States and State X directly, and that would probably give you a better sense of uh, how intentions change uh, with actions, uh, instead of using the third party. Um, next point, uh, time span. Um, so, as you well know, the literature on reassurance is uh, about medium to long-term understandings of states' intentions, um, but this is short-term stuff. Um, and it's not clear to me how that scales up to the medium term. Uh, and final point on the experiment, um, what are you concerned about the 75%, you say 75% reduction uh, mm -hmm. in forces. Um, and it just gets me thinking, uh, if that happens, what is it that's doing the work? Is the state that's observing it, does it think to itself, well, now the state has no capability, right? And I have nothing to worry about. Or does it think it's benign? And it seems like when you go with a big number, like a 75% reduction, I mean, I would just say, well, the state is no longer a threat because it doesn't have any capability in the area. So I don't see how you can get to intentions from there. So it's a conflation of capability and intentions. Um, then the broader point um, about the literature um, can you stop here and then maybe you can? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Is that okay? Sure, of course. Yeah. <clears throat> um, about the confidence. Um, I didn't ask about the confidence. How response are you confident with um, confident? Um, let me think how I can react to the question. Um, I could ask a lot of questions, including how confident they are when they respond to um, my questions. Um, however, my intention was very simple, manipulate the cost of signals and how they responded. Um, so. If I could have asked the confidence level of respondents, I might have um, have some findings, but I didn't. Um, maybe I think um, I can add this question and replicate this same experiment using MTurk sample. Um, that is one alternative that I can do. Um, but this experiment, the purpose of the experiment was very simple. Manipulate cost and do people respond as the logic of signaling dictates or not? So I didn't. But possibly I could do the same experiment using MTRIC sample, which is relatively simple. But just to say very quickly, when you're wondering how much the threat state perceives and how it's going to react, right? Um, confidence has to matter because if you think that state is very peaceful, mm -hmm. but your confidence is close to zero that you're correct, 
that dictates a completely different understanding of threat and reaction than if you decide that it's um, very peaceful and you are 95% confident. You see what I'm saying? I mean, I don't see how you can do this without asking a confident question. I think this is the beauty of the experiment somehow, um, to some extent. Um, maybe some respondents might have very might have been very confident. Some respondents might have been not really confident, but responded to my questions anyway. So this is random. So maybe um, one way to ask your, I mean, to respond to your question is holding the in sorry holding this factor of confidence constant. How respondents would react to this question. Um, that might be one of the responses to your question. Does it make sense? Mm -hmm. um, your second question was, uh, let me see. Ah, so why did I put um, the third party, which is the United States ally, um, and the interaction between the country X and um, the United States might be more complicated. One of the reasons why I put country as, I'm sorry, um, the United States ally is because in reality, there's no such straight state stronger than the United States. And it's kind of hard to let respondents imagine the situation that the United States and other countries directly um, fight over, um, because the United States have border just with the Canada and Mexico. It's kind of hard to make respondents to imagine the situations that the United States have disputes with this kind of country. So it was kind of hard to make the scenario. So that's why I put um, the third party in the scenario. And I try to um, make this scenario that, okay, this is directly related to the U.S. interest um, because, because um, it, it, it's ally and um, it can be a threat somehow in the region which might challenge the um, the status of U.S. hegemon. So somehow I try to make it real. Um, the third question was about time span. Um, maybe because, um, this might be a bad excuse, but um, I thought about intentions motives, I mean, middle or longer term of intentions. Um, and in this experiment, I wanted to restrict my intention, sorry, my experiment to only short-term intentions. Um, so maybe further experiments, future experiments might touch the longer-term intentions, but um, it was kind of hard to. Um, it was kind of hard to touch both short-term intentions, medium intentions, or longer-term intentions. So I restricted my experiment to shorter term of intentions. Um, your last point was um, conflation of capability and intentions. Um, I think Glazer's way of um, conveying a state's benign intentions 
some of the ways is related to a state's capability. He is talking about unilateral arms control, unilateral um, reductions of its arms. Um, it is related to um, a state's capability. So I think Glazer's point is those actions can increase a state's vulnerability. However, even with this, sorry, even with this reduction or sorry, increase of vulnerability, this vulnerability can increase security, one security in some situations. So, um, I agree that um, intention, the matters of intention and capability is kind of conflated. But one of the way to reveal one's intentions is actually conflated with the capability. Does this make sense? Yes, and other. Yeah, Sebastian, you had a non-experiment related question you wanted to ask. Please. I don't think this is a debate between Charlie Blaze and John Nashon. Uh, to the extent that it is, Mike Dash doesn't care, uh, as he said a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I'll say a couple of things about that. One is, Nashon doesn't have a theory of intentions. He, he just says they can't be known 100%, but nothing can be known 100%. But there's just no argument there about intentions. Um, and Glazer, Glazer has this thing that this is how intention, this is how actions will be interpreted with respect to intentions if states act rationally, where rationally is how I think they should think, right? Which is sort of convoluted thing. But the, the point is that there's, there's no debate between them. Um, what I think is going on here. Well, the two questions that I, I think are really interesting in the literature are, first, do states revise their, in, their understandings of other states' intentions from signals? And you've shown that they do, right? If you look at a state, it, dis, it disarms, and you revise your assessment in a positive direction, right? It arms, you revise it in a negative direction, right? So that's the first question. But the really interesting question is, do states revise their intentions enough for it to change their behavior? And I think that's what you're getting at um, in, in part of your paper and part of your talk. Um, and there, your argument is they don't because they have sort of put this sort of prospect uh, fear going on. Um, another thing you can just say is that um, this would be the structural wheels position is that the costs of being wrong at death, right? And therefore, um, you, you, you can revise, you, you acknowledge that you can revise intentions, but just not enough, you can, your understanding, but just not enough to cooperate, right? Um, but what I point out to you is that your, your argument about prospect theory is all about survival, right? Mm -hmm. And so is the realist argument, right? And so, but I think that's a really interesting question. Is like, can they revise them enough? How much is enough? Like, how confident do you need to be in order for states to cooperate? Or how confident do you need to be the other states aggressive to attack them, right? I mean, so I think that's the really interesting question. Um, you know, the fact that costly signals get states to revise their views, like, one way or the other, sort of around.
around a sort of middle line, yeah, fine, great. But as you point out, it doesn't actually change their assessment of threat or their uh, behavior. And I think that's because the question, because they revise it, but they don't get to the threshold. And the really interesting question is, where's the threshold? Um, does, does that make sense? <clears throat> um, your question was rather long, so I'm not sure whether I understood well, your just, question correctly. Just, you don't even have to answer it. Just, just okay. Um, so, um, just let me see whether my understanding is correct. Um, you talk about the confidence. How much should we confident? to change our attitudes or our behaviors? And what is the threshold? Um, again, about the confidence, um, I, I don't know. Uh, honestly, I don't know the question, how to answer the question. Uh, I would just say you have, and we can leave it at this, you have a lot of evidence that it takes a lot, right, for a state to change its attitude. Right, you have to see a state disarming seventy-five percent, right? And even then, it's not enough, right? And so I, I would just say to you that that's that is an interesting finding, right? Don't forget the whole costly signaling literature. Um, costly just means it's more costly for one type than another type, right? So you revise your assessment, but you're moving it a little bit, right? And you're saying. Your evidence shows you have to revise it a ton, right, in order for you to change your behavior. That's a damning indictment of costly signaling. Yes, I agree. Um, that is one of my points in this paper. And um, also, I think repeated signals is important, and um, consistency of lots of signals are important. So in my experiment, I presented only one action which may not be enough for decision makers to make decisions on their on the use of force against um, an adversary. Um, so the future experiment might be, as you said, what's the threshold? How many times should states repeat their actions? Um, um, and something like that. So um, before I conduct these experiments, I also um, conducted an experiment which reduces even 90%, um, reduction of 90% of one's army. Um, and Alex Downs told me that, no, that's too extreme. You should not do that. But I did that with using MTRIC because that's relatively cheap. I did anyway. And that's even 75 cents of <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so even 90% um, of reduction of army didn't work for reassurance. So, then I thought that, okay, experiment, I should not this because experiments doesn't work. This is totally wrong because I strongly believe that 90% should work, but it didn't. Um, I'm not surprised at all. Um, so, so there are um, many responses why even 75 or 90% of reduction of army don't work. Um, very brief response. First, um, I thought that it might be, I mean, this is a different story, this is a totally different story, but first of all, 
maybe um, offensive realists are right because if as long as this um, reduction of army in the area of dispute is not related to its general military capability, maybe it doesn't work. So that's my first alternative explanation. The second, maybe this is an identity problem. As long as one perceives other states, an adversary, it's hard to change the, uh, the identity of the enemy. So that, that was the alternative explanations that I thought. Um, and maybe I have to um, develop more, but there are other alternatives to explain this result. Can I just ask you real quickly, and, and I'll come back to this when I actually have my, my chance, but the, you're measuring uh, intentions independent of capabilities, right? Um, so this is related to um, Sebastian's point. Yeah, no, no, I mean, that's why I'm raising it now. Yeah. Because if, if you're not, then I'm not sure, you know, how you can engage in any uh, compar comparative theory or uh, paradigm analysis. If, the, if intentions are measured by threat, um, you know, then... I'm not threat by uh, uh, material power capabilities. Um, you know, then uh, you know they're indistinguishable from the uh, you know the major one of your major alternative explanations. Um, but I, let me let me come back to. I just was asking you. You are or you aren't uh, offering a separate uh, measure of separate intention. measure. Yes. Yeah. You are. Yes. Okay. And so then this discussion about the reduction mm -hmm. in uh, power capabilities, mm -hmm. that's not a measure of intentions, then, or it shouldn't be, right? Um, I think it's related, as you pointed out, but still, it's, I cannot say that power and intentions are... Sorry, I, I think that there are different things because um, in my experiment and according to um, theorists, um, intention, I mean, in my experiment, I describe benign intentions as withdrawing of army, right? In withdrawing its army from the area of dispute. <coughs> or, um, deploying its army in the area of dispute. It's not related to general capability. It's the capability in those areas. So as I said to Sebastian, the, maybe one of the reasons why research doesn't work is might be because respondents thought that, okay, this is just a movement of army. It's not related to general military capability of the adversary. So I think that might be the distinction but still, um, maybe I'm confused, but um, again, vulnerability, increasing vulnerability, and the relationship between the vulnerability and security, at some point, I think, power and intention, the way to, be, to, to reveal one's benign intentions is a little bit related. But I think, in my experience, I think they are different, at least. 
So let's get back to the queue, Sean. Thanks, Dick Jim. I have a handful of questions, um, and I'll just ask one and save the rest for later, but uh, this follows on Sebastian's last point as well. Um, so in using psychology, uh, one of the criticisms of political psychology, specifically prospect theory that Jack Levy brings up, is that if we're going to use it, especially in uh, comparison with rational choice, with expected utility, that we're taking a, a, a much bigger empirical burden on ourselves, right? And you've shown that. It's much easier to make a one-sentence assumption about rationality than it is to get an NSF grant and go through IRB and conduct a survey experiment, right? So in taking this greater empirical burden, right, there needs to be some sort of value added, right, that we're getting something different out of this than we would out of the assumption of rationality. And so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about where this uh, prospect theory approach, and especially this negativity bias, how this relates to the literature, this idea that, that, that states will worst case because, uh, because survival is so important, right? And coming out of the relative gains debate in the early 90s, this was something that was said. was Okay, maybe we can cooperate on economic issues, but when it comes to security, right, if I get burned in the domain of security, it could mean the end of me, right? And so I'm much more cautious. Right? I'm going to worst case. And so if I have that type of thinking, not bringing in a negativity bias, not bringing in prospect theory, and I go into your survey, am I going to have results that are any different? Um, so that's kind of one concrete question. And then the second is, is just how you would see this, your work tying into this idea. Have, have you found the mechanism that explains this worst casing? Or is this something unique? Um, I think your first point, um, because this is a security issue, uh, we should be more cautious. Um, and that line of thinking, and what I argued based on the prospect theory uh, is not fundamentally different. Um, because survival thing is about, um, it's about security and it's, it can be, the economic issues can be about the survival. Um, I've not thought about this before, but I think it's not fundamentally different. Um, and if I follow your logic, that because security is more important, um, we should be more cautious. Um, I think fundamentally, I think it's the same. Um, your second question about the unique mechanism um, I need, to, I need to think about it more. Um, I stopped here showing um, that we need to be rarely reassured. Um, I'm still keep thinking about the unique mechanism. I, am, I need to develop it. Thank you. Okay, Nisha, please. Uh, Sikjin, thank you for a really interesting paper uh, and a great presentation. My first question is, similar, related to Sean's first question, but a little bit different. It's it's kind of an external validity question. I, 
I really like the political psychology argument and drawing on prospect theory, but I wonder, and you talk about this a little bit in the paper, but I wanted to push you a little bit, if you could tell us whether there are reasons to think that leaders, political leaders, might tend to have different biases or different distributions of biases than your average MTurk or YouGov respondent. Um, the second question kind of related to what you know, Sumesh and also Sean were, were bringing up about uh, the nature of the threat, the severity of the threat. And it was almost a suggestion, because I know um, how expensive what the time and money it is to do experiments. Um, Although I was stunned at 75 cents a pop on uh, MTurk. Yeah, but we, you know, there's a whole other conversation to be had about MTurk versus other sampling platforms. Um, In other words, you get what you pay for. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so, um, have you considered using, have, have either you considered using a scenario where the stakes are higher? And I understand your point that when you ran this survey originally, that was implausible, but maybe it's more plausible now, just guessing. Um, or if you know, I wondered if other people have run us uh, an experiment like that, and you could kind of leverage what some of their findings. And then finally, I wanted to ask you a question about policy implications. And if you're finding about the difficulty of reassurance is robust, what advice would you give to those who want to send benign signals? Um, the first question about the external validity, I think that's the hardest question that I can have. Um, um, I do not have particularly good answers to the question. Um, this is exactly the same thing that I mentioned in my paper, and this is not particularly new. Um, so, would leaders have the same kind of bias um, or different distribution of threat assessment? Uh, my argument in the paper was um, two. Um, as you already know, in democracies, decision makers should listen to the public opinion, um, and that's um, I think the most common response to external political question. Um, I have to um, examine the literature of public opinion and elite decision-making more, but so far, um, I don't know why their perception should be different, particularly if this is um, an evolutionary thing. Um, well, can I break sure. this your time for me to just interject? So I mean, there is a literature out there on this, I, I, don't, I guess I was, I was thinking about the literature on why women don't run for office, right? And so there's a literature out there on how um, the political process might select 
for a certain type of individual, especially when we're talking about elected officials, maybe not so much when you're talking about appointed officials. So if that's the case, then um, you might have, you know, they're representing one, the, the elected officials are representing one segment of the, the distribution of the population and a non-representative segment at that. So that that's kind of what I was wondering about. Right. Um, so again, I don't have a good answer to that question. Um, there will be a lot of factors um, that affect decision makers' um, foreign policy decisions. Um, for example, I um, I examined the effect of um, individual characteristics such as political knowledge, age, gender, ideology, um, family income, and so on. Um, so my question is, why should political elites are different from the public? Is it because they have more experiences? Is it because they have more income? Is it because they have more, um, um, more males than females? Um, so, again, um, I should apologize for not being able to answer um, the question appropriately. Um, but I think this experiment is kind of the baseline um, of how people think. And, okay, there's a public and elites, and maybe one layer, one difference is maybe political knowledge. Then we can put the variable in the experiment, political knowledge. If it's about ideology, then we can put the variable as, a, as the second layer. So, um, again, I know that this is not a good answer, um, but I wanted to start as, as a baseline. Uh, and maybe we can uh, make my sample to similar to that of political elites by putting another variables that make the distinction um, clear. Um, for example, so I examined the effect of ideology on um, people's response. And, I, and one of the reasons I put the individual characteristics is because I thought that I might be able to make a sample that, e, that might be close to the ideal type of political elites. That is why I um, put those variables. Um, and again, political elites, their response can be different from those of the public. I know that. Um, but still, um, I believe that public opinion matters in um, decision makers' decisions. That's all that I can respond right now. Okay, quick two finger from Carrie. Um, so on on Nisha's point, I mean, including including public knowledge as a variable as a control variable in your regressions isn't going to get to what Nisha is is talking about. You'd be much better off if you stratified based yeah. on political knowledge and wanted and went to go see if there's a difference in slope or a difference in how um, folks with more political knowledge more um, more experience, etc. People who have characteristics 
um, individual characteristics more likely to reflect elites um, if they behave differently mm. than Doblo. Mm. Um, I agree. Okay, so yeah. that's that's you know the yeah. suggestion is if you were to stratify it rather than yeah. just including it as a control variable. I yeah I didn't use critical knowledge or other individual characteristics as control variable. Um, so I mean you do in your regressions. I put the variable, but for example, um, I do the same thing with critical knowledge as I did here. For example, I stratified. You did. Uh, yeah, I mean for um, political ideology. Oh well, so ideology is not gonna. I mean ideology is not gonna get to what Nisha's talking about. Yeah, I know. So political knowledge. So I can do the same thing with yeah. the variable political knowledge as I did with um, ideology. So right. I separated um, the responses of those who are very liberal or very conservative. So I can do exactly the same thing with political knowledge. Yeah, if you were to just create like a binary variable that said, yeah. um, you know, Elite versus non-elite, uh -huh. and created a set of criteria that said, yeah, yeah, yeah. "I think that you know this person is this type of person is about you know representative of elites." It would be very interesting to see, um, and perhaps you know a whole other paper to see you know do elites think about these things differently than non-elites? Yes. So shockingly, with such a small and uh, intimate group. Uh, we're we're uh, running a little bit up against time. Uh, with, without prejudice, um, I want to suggest that it's probably in your interest, Yukjun, to get more issues out on the table. So uh, why don't we, with your permission, uh, get back to the list? Uh, unless there's something you want to uh, ask uh, Nisha or Carrie about on their points. Okay. If not, uh, Amitabha? Yeah, that was a very interesting paper and a good presentation. I have uh, three uh, questions. Uh, the first is uh, about uh, your whole framing of this paper as looking at rationalist theory and then trying to sort of test it, let's say, against prospect and against, uh, you know, realism of Nishamakarin and so on. And I, I was wondering if, if somebody is not at all interested in rationalist theory, like I'm not. I.e. Amitabha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not. Uh, because I think it's, it's utter nonsense. There's nothing called rational. Okay? Because uh, even, even prospect theory people think there is something rational. And believe that there are biases, you know? like you know, perhaps you know, as you say, you know, gains and losses are, are very different. But I think it's perfectly reasonable to say, and perhaps I'm, I'm sounding more provocative than I really am, is that these there are not probabilistic outcomes. Okay? All of these are about probabilistic outcomes. When you see something, you see data, or, or you do something, there are probabilistic outcomes, and you maximize expected utility. These probabilistic outcomes, these probabilistic things are actually objective. Okay? Now, nobody in their right mind thinks that the kinds of things that you're dealing with have these objective probabilities. Now, this doesn't destroy the whole paper, but it still leads to some heuristics that people use to, to look at, you know, for example, I'm giving a signal. Okay? Now, this is usually expressed in terms of, uh, you know, this kind of rationalist approach, but 
you know, it's a common sense approach. Good, right? You know, if I'm doing something that makes somebody else believe, okay, this is not based on a, really anything to do with ethical maximization. So, so I would say to make it more appealing to a more general group of people, reasonable people, I think, uh, you know, you might want to sort of add this this element to it. So that's a comment, really, okay? Because it smacks too much of accepting some ideas and then saying people behave sort of in an irrational way or or, or even Mearsheimer claims to be uh, assuming rationality and I don't know what that means. So so that's one point, okay? The second point is I think that accepting the way you do these things, you look at each of the three dependent variable questions and see how this thing behaves, right? That is, if you give uh, more of a change or if you, you know, and you look at what happens. But, but I would say much more interesting, and this connects with some of the issues that Mike and Sebastian were saying, is, is the differences in the three cases. L like, for example, in your, uh, in your discussion of what was it, intentions, you find that uh, some version of, you know, it works, right? But in the second one, it doesn't work, okay? That tells you either that intentions are nonsense, okay? Or that, and, and but then in the third one, again, where you talk about foreign policy, which I assume sort of, uh, you know, reflects things like power as well as threat, right? So, so you, I think you can get more mileage out of looking at the differences uh, of the three, uh, Some troops, can you bring them back very quickly? Okay, uh, 
this is part of the information that's missing. But going back to this present point, this seems like just something that's happening right now, and you're forgetting about all whole history of interactions of these countries. So I was wondering about these potential problems of this kind of solution. Thank you for your comments. Um, <clears throat> do you want to respond, or do you want to okay. give more yeah, comments? Yeah, I can more. Uh, yeah, I can uh, out on the uh, the, the floor. Mm -hmm. uh, Dan, yeah. um, my first comment might be a rephrasing of Fong's uh, point, but I'm wondering how you tell if psychology is doing any work at all in the study. In that, um, your argument, I think, is. Negative cognitive biases of prospect theory seems to be doing the work. Rationalist uh, literature on positive signals is not doing the work. But how can you tell the difference between psychological negative bias and worst casing, and sort of realist worst casing, which is also a rationalist way of doing things? So I'm not sure how you can tell the difference between those two. Um, both are into survival, uh, but I would say the rational and the realist side has a bit of rationality to it. Uh, second, I think there's some surprising or odd or puzzling things about getting down to the use of force. Um, first, how would people decide to use force without knowing the stakes? It seems Sorry. really, how, how would people decide to use force without knowing the stakes at hand here? Is this the U.S. supporting the Brits against, you know, supporting the Brits in the Falklands? Is it the U.S. against China over some small islands? Is it Russia having invaded Poland? It really matters a lot what the states are, but we don't know them. So that's interesting, but it's going to raise a question or a point, which I'll raise in just a second. So you mean the, the, the country, the, which country? Yeah, which country and what's at stake for that country. And it raises a point about, I think something else is going on here, about the decisions to use force, or the preferences to use force. Um, it's also puzzling because I think if people are survival motivated, they might choose not to go to war. Right? Like, why the heck would I go to war for the Falklands? Like, why would I go to war for some stupid island in the Pacific? You know, I don't know why. But I would think if people are truly cautious, right, then they wouldn't want to use force unless they really knew what was going on. So maybe prospect theory explains it. Right. So in the domain of potential losses, you decide to have risk. Or here's what I think might be going on. I think the United States is plagued with concerns about honor and credibility. And once you tune up the harshness in the scenario and the response, you kind of put people on edge, right? And that's why some people would say, let's use force. Or you've identified what I might call the bar fight instinct, right? You turn up the heat in a situation. A lot of Americans just want to have a fight. That's because who we are. So I'm not sure it's prospect theory or something to do with honor, credibility, or bar fight instinct you might have identified. And how do you tell the difference Okay, uh, Ben. Uh, thank you, Sidney. A lot of the comments I have have uh, been said so at the same time. I won't read them. I just had a few maybe um, possible extensions, suggestions that might be helpful. Um, so on Nisha's point, while she was talking, I was thinking um, if you look at John Schuessler's book on deceit and how presidents deceive public in order to get public opinion higher uh, to go to war, that might be you know a possible counter argument to contend with how elites can shape a public opinion and kind of present these facts in a certain way to uh, change their opinion. Uh, and also Liz Saunders' work on foreign policy advisors, um, that might be also looking interesting to look at how elites kind of view the world differently and how presidents with their advisors kind of uh, 
uh, might have different views on the world uh, than the rest of public opinion. So it just might be something to uh, uh, put note and look at. Um, the other, only other small point I have um, is in the in the maybe a future experiment. Obviously, you can't just go run into the experiment again tomorrow. Um, I'd be interested in looking at this kind of a status quo bias. Kind of here, your it's um, your only options are they increase by seventy five percent or decrease by seventy five percent. But I don't know what was that border beforehand. Um, so how armed was the border before uh, the dispute broke out? So I'd be interested to know. Say um, instead of saying this kind of increase decrease, what say there was you could have two tests where. Uh, the uh, country X has 10,000 troops on the border versus country X had 2,500 and now sent 7,500 more to the border. My guess is, even though they're the same uh, number of troops, sending the new troops to the border will be seen as, you know, the more, uh, that will be seen as the more threatening action. Um, and I think that proves your point. But it seems that when you're just looking at that, I don't know if it's just that movement that's causing things. Um, versus just the raw capabilities or not, so that might be an interesting way to kind of uh, play that out and just look at kind of who's, and just more context on who's moving first and what's kind of going on in the whole situation. You might go to Dan's point about what are the stakes, um, who's actually doing what, and what time during that crisis. Okay, thank you. Uh, Jihei? Um, I also had multiple questions, but in the interest of time, I focus on just a couple. Um, actually, the, my first comment is, uh, has been touched upon, and I'm not going to be repeating um, some of the other comments that had already been made, but um, uh, so your paper makes a rather straightforward assumption about the relationship between action and intention, right? Um, so aggressive intentions um, Implied, uh, sorry, aggressive actions uh, imply aggressive intentions and conciliatory actions presuppose conciliatory intentions, right? But uh, I think this regards um, some problems on both sides, uh, like both um, the signal sender side and also the receiver side, right? Um, so there may be, you know, um, ample incentive for, for country X to actually deceive the United States. Right. And, and understanding that there might be a possibility of deception on, on the side of country types, the United States or U.S. policymakers might, you know, uh, I guess, uh, uh, discount their assessment of how confident or not confident uh, of, of, uh, about the, the threats that are, uh, that are coming from country X. I think, um, I think it essentially speaks to the importance of confidence level, right? Like how, how confident you need to be about, um, about the intentions of the other side. And another issue is short-term intentions versus long-term intentions. One could argue that there is a difference between what a state intends to do in the short term and what it intends to do over the long haul. And you know, these two things can be convergent or divergent, right? So country X may have benign intentions for the United States um, in general, right, but may take a hostile stance against it on a specific issue. Um, or it could have hostile intentions or, or uh, conciliatory intentions in all matters, right? We don't know. 
But so the question is, do you think there's a difference between short-term and long-term intentions? And, and if so, is it possible to infer long-term intentions from, from you know, what you observed or what you think are short-term intentions? Great. Uh, thanks. Uh, Carrie? Okay. Um, thank you. Really, really interesting and exciting work um, on this new frontier. So I think I've got, I've got a big picture comment a couple of suggestions, a couple of empirical critiques, and then presentation things we'll talk to you about later. Um, the first is the big picture question, is that your whole, your entire paper is predicated on the assumption that states operate as a leader unit of analysis, right? You're, you're ascribing human cognitive psychology to the behavior of states. And so your unit of analysis is, is essentially a leader. Um, so why don't you ask additional questions about, um, about other potential sources of biases? So again, Liz Saunders stuff on experience, on worldview, on all of these other things, like you don't really interact with that at all in the paper. Um, and when I think that that's probably a, a pretty important counterpoint to to what you're discussing, because if you do accept that a leader is, is the unit of analysis, then you need to start thinking about all the other things that affect leader psychology and leader's decision making. Um, so a couple of suggestions. One I already mentioned about separating based on um, political knowledge and elite. Um, that's sort of a first crack at figuring out if there is a difference between elite behavior versus public behavior. Um, the second is, it would be interesting, I think, to see, in order to try and get at some of these questions about what's doing the work on the use of force, because ultimately what we're interested in is the use of force, right? And uh -huh. so is it intentions that are doing the work, or is it the threat perception? And so I may be wrong in my use of the term here, but it might be interesting to try some mediation and analysis to see if you know, your changes in threat perception are more predictive of the use of force versus your changes in intentions to be more predictive of whether you support the use of force or not. Um, I think that would be a really interesting thing to do with what you've done. Empirically, um, I'm a little surprised that you get statistically significant results at all, um, given the size of your sample and how many different ways you stratify. Um, I mean, you've got 14 boxes for a sample of, like, what, 540 individuals? That's an average of, like, 35 people per category. So, I mean, I a larger sample size, I think, is going to help you, because in everything I see, it's basically moving in the directions you expect, but your confidence intervals are huge. And so, I think you just need a larger sample size in order to make the argument that you want to make. Um, because at the moment, you know, you have a lot of statistically insignificant results um, that, that I think is a function of the survey design um, and the, the sample size in particular. The other one is for your regressions. Do you use an OLS? Okay, so you shouldn't be using an OLS because that assumes, it assumes that you can go negative, that your DV can be negative. Um, so a Poisson distribution is going to be more helpful to you there because it'll eliminate the possibility, like, it won't assume this linear relationship, it'll curve it towards zero. Um, 
in a way that I think will actually help you. Okay, and then finally we'll uh, recognize the distinguished chairman. <clears throat> and I'm going to go to the, uh, the board here, see if I can make this uh, clear. This is, I had trouble going back to uh, my intervention on Sebastian's point, uh, figuring out the difference between uh, intentions and capabilities or threats. So I was trying to think about this, and the only way I can think about these things is uh, in a two-by-two. Two. Tell me if you think that this is helpful. Um, so we've got your benign and uh, aggressive intentions, and we've got strong, meaning powerful states, um, and weak states. And we've got uh, three uh, alternative classes of explanation. Structural realism, uh, prospect theory, and uh, the rationalist theory. Now the problem is, in a lot of these boxes, the predictions uh, of these overlap, and in some cases are the same in all three. So I'm wondering if it's the, the uh, overarching pattern where you're going to see some uh, real variation. Um, and I don't want to take too much time with this, but you know, just help me think through a couple of these. In a, uh, a situation where you have benign intentions uh, but strong power, um, structural realism uh, certainly sees uh, an intense threat there. Uh, benign intentions but uh, strong power, rationalist theory uh, doesn't see uh, a strong threat. Um, and then prospect theory, uh, I think, would see a threat. Now, in the box with uh, benign intentions um, and uh, weak power, uh, structural realism, I think, is a zero. Um, rationalism, I think, would be a zero. Um, I guess we could ask, what about uh, prospect theory? Um, strong power, uh, aggressive intentions, uh, structural realism, and rationalism would both uh, see a threat. Prospect theory, I think, pretty clearly would as well. And then weak but aggressive intentions. Now, structural realism should not see a threat there, uh, whereas rationalism should. I think prospect theory would there. I think prospect theory would there. So I, I'm wondering, um, first of all, if thinking about it uh, this way and you know separating out power from intentions uh, doesn't get more clearly to what you're interested in. Um, and secondly, um, by uh, doing it uh, you know, in this larger set of patterns, you aren't you know, dependent on a particular cell in terms of uh, testing the alternative theories, because unfortunately you see a lot of overlap, but rather 
uh, looking at a, and I'm not sure this is exactly right, but you, you get the idea, by looking at an overall set of predictions across these different cells, that that might give you uh, some leverage. And then the, you know, the question would be, could you attach proper names to each of these uh, sorts of cells? But I think you got to be, in my humble opinion, you got to be really careful uh, about uh, conflating uh, military capability uh, with intentions. I mean, I know there's a, a reasonable argument uh, for making that claim, but then that makes comparative uh, theory testing uh, very difficult, and you're going to end up uh, particularly um, in... Uh, you know, in the comparative theory test with structural realism, uh, getting uh, people on both sides of the barricades claiming a particular outcome as, um, you know, as uh, supporting their case. I think really the strongest test for the, the role of intentions is if they're, if they're active, uh, independent uh, of the power of the, uh, of the state. Um, and uh, if you can show that, I think that's it's a strong test for intentions. If you can't, uh, then you're going to get into a problem where you're going to have a hard time separating yourself from uh, alternative arguments. Dan? I think that's a really useful exercise, but I think you're going to have to parse out a few different things as well, because I think prospect theory and costly signaling depend a lot on what is the signal, and prospect theory depends a lot on what is the situation. So those are very situational. Our structural realism is not so situational. It makes predictions you know, based on power and whatnot. Structural realism also would, of course, come up zero in the W column because they don't do small powers for the most part. So that's just a domain question for them. So I think you have to expand the typology a bit. But thinking about this question of equifinality with predictions is really important. And I think there's a lot of that in the different questions people Asked is you know, how can you tell if psychology is doing the work or if it's coterminous with realism? Um, what's doing the work? So I think that's a very useful thing to do. I think Mike's exercise uh, bear, you know, should bear a lot of fruit for you. Okay, do you have any, uh, uh, Jihei, did yeah. you? Okay, do you have any closing remarks or should we uh, leave it? Emma Todd, I have a yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Emmy Todd. Yeah, yeah, I just wanted to ask about this this point about intentions, right? Uh, what, what do you have in mind, and what instructions do you give the speaker about? Is it like benign or an aggressive, or what is the intention of what they would do? What What do you mean? What do you mean by intention, and what do you think these people didn't give them any instructions? And what do you mean by intentions? When you, when you were trying to tell somebody that uh, Mike was benign and Amitabha was uh, uh, malign or aggressive, uh, what exactly did you do to describe that difference to the survey respondent? Uh, so, um, I'm not sure whether I understand your question correctly, but um, so uh, I think Amitabh is just asking about the phrasing, the different phrasings of the treatments. Yes. The different, the, the, 
how you, what, what the words that you used in the different versions of the treatments. Yeah. Oh, so you, do you mean like costly and less costly and cheap united conditions? The difference between those three different conditions? No, no, when you, one question, one, one of the things that we were supposed to choose is, is what is the intention, right? Uh-huh, yeah. How did you tell them what intention, you know, means? Do you just leave it at the word intention? Or? Right, yes. That's all you did? Yeah. Okay, because intentions can mean different things. Uh-huh. One interpretation of the word might be making, right? About benign intention versus aggressive. In other words, what they intend to do, and that might depend on the power as well. Right, yeah, I left the definition of intentions um, to the discussion of respondents. <laughs> okay, um, on that happy note, I intend to uh, close our session this evening, but uh, first, uh, I want to uh, thank uh, Seok Jun for a not only a terrific uh, presentation, um, but also uh, for uh, being a, uh, a great uh, inaugural uh, postdoctoral fellow for uh, end this, this year. I was having coffee earlier with Carrie and saying, uh, you guys were the beta test uh, for a lot of uh, NDISC uh, this year, uh, both beta tests for the postdocs and being the subject of the beta test for a lot of things that uh, we're trying to do. Um, and uh, I can't tell you uh, what a treat it's been uh, to uh, have you with us and to have uh, Carrie with us uh, this year. Uh, things will be a lot better in five years. Uh, that's the downside, but the upside is they'll be a lot better because uh, you guys were here and helped us fix some of the uh, early bumps in the road. So at least... Next year we'll do IRB approval for the postdoc. Yeah. <laughs> mess with them. So please join me in thanking If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers not of the international security center or the university of notre dame which take no institutional position music for this podcast is licensed under sample swap <laughs>